Imagine the scene. It's July 2023. In a meeting, Vietnam's Minister for Culture, Sports and Tourism is furious, his face twisted into a picture of superlative disgust. Behind him on a large screen is an image of a pretty blonde American lady decked out in a smart button-up dress. I want this movie banned, he snarls. I want every single image, digital, paper, or even printed on a little girl's knapsack removed from this country and dumped into the trash can of fake history. He's talking about Barbie. A blockbuster movie that has divided the West on socio-cultural grounds, but one that's angered and offended Vietnam on a much higher level. Why? Because Barbie, as some people have said, is an assault on men, or according to another critic, is a flaming piece of dog poop, a Death Star-sized piece of drac that teaches children all the wrong things. No is the answer. Vietnam could give a rat's behind about polarizing Western world issues. What's incensed the country is an image that appeared in a Barbie scene we just mentioned featuring China's perhaps indelicate nine-dash line. In fact, the Barbie movie is not the first film that Vietnam has banned over this line. Nine highly offensive dark dashes demarcating what critics say is China's brazen territorial claim. Malaysia and the Philippines have also banned American movies over nine dashes, a problem for Hollywood's bottom line, but a feather in the cap for China. The issue of that now infamous line has been heating up lately. It doesn't look like this story will have anything close to a Hollywood happy ending. Rather, violence is probably on the not-too-distant horizon, which, as you'll see later, has many citizens of Asian nations worried. The USA plays a major role in this existential concern, of course. We'll come back to the present scraps and squabbles soon, but first, we need to look at how this line came into being in the first place. We must ask ourselves, how can China be so bold as to claim so much of this area as its own? Are its long territory-grabbing fingers acting within their rights, or is China being the schoolyard bully of the South China Sea? First, you must understand some history to understand China's rather big claim. As some of you know, for centuries China was quite an isolated nation. It was very advanced, though, so when those first Europeans went there and marveled at various Chinese inventions, the Chinese would often refer to those Westerners as uncivilized barbarians. When those enterprising Europeans started to exploit the world's natural resources, sailing around the world to do business and often kill and conquest, China still remained mostly isolated. During the height of the European Industrial Revolution in 1820, despite the British and the rest of Western Europe churning out newfangled money-making industrial machinery, China easily had the world's largest economy. That year, the country's economy was about six times bigger than Britain's, which was the largest economy in Europe. China's economy at the time also dwarfed the USA by about 20 times. In fact, China and India at that point together made up 49% of the world's GDP. The British went on to govern India, 1858 to 1947. Some say rob India blind, but getting to China's wealth became a different kind of ballgame. Presently, China will waste no time telling the world about its superpower prowess in those days, but the country also believes the imperialists robbed it at a time when those imperialists were getting very good at making weapons. It's important to understand this widespread conviction in China when trying to understand the country's present territorial claims. In a nutshell, the Europeans weren't happy about China's isolationism. They wanted to do business. The Brits, through the East India Company, especially didn't like China snubbing trade. The Brits hated the fact that China would only sell its very popular products, such as tea and silk, in exchange for British silver. This created a trade imbalance, and one way to get around that was by illegally selling opium from British India to China. As effectively the first large drug trafficking cartel in history, the Brits went from selling 200 chests of opium a year in 1729 to 10,000 chests per year between 1820 and 1830. In 1838, Britain was selling about 40,000 chests. 
helped along by very dodgy Chinese officials and drug dealers in the port of Canton. Meanwhile, China had an opiate crisis on its hands that makes the US opiate crisis today look like an opiate triviality. The British were acting kinda like a big pharma slash Sinaloa cartel of the 1800s. Millions of Chinese were addicted to this old school Oxycontin. A UN report said at the height of the crisis, one in four Chinese adults were spending their days nodding out on opium. Not good for society at all. In short, the Chinese fought back by burning a huge amount of British opium, and after some more incidents, the two countries ended up going to war. The Europeans, with their new technologies, were certainly very advanced. Barbarians maybe, but barbarians that could easily outclass China in a fight. The Brits by then had far superior battleships and weapons. China was riddled with corruption, official misinformation got back to Beijing, and so the Brits easily won what's now called the First Opium War. For the next century or thereabouts, Western European powers as well as Japan, Russia, and the US to some extent beat China up in a series of wars and conflicts that ended with brutal treaties now known as unequal treaties, and the superpower China gradually turned into what was called the sick man of Asia. It lost so much, including lots of territory, China was carved up and plundered. Imperialism is ferocious, Chairman Mao Zedong said years later, even if he was a tyrant of the highest order. China now calls this the century of humiliation, and often you'll hear political rhetoric in China telling people never again. For you to appreciate the present beef over these nine dashes, you have to understand that bit of history. We only gave you a small snapshot, but it'll do for now. China claims that its nine dash line, which encompasses close to 90% of the 3 million square kilometers in the South China Sea, is its own blue national soil. The country claims indisputable sovereignty over this area based on its days as a powerhouse in the region before it started losing parts of the territory to the likes of Britain, Japan, and France. Nonetheless, you'd be within your rights to ask why China gets this territory when indeed the South China Sea is surrounded by many countries, including Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, Brunei, and Taiwan. You need to know something about the latter. Taiwan, aka the Republic of China (ROC), was annexed in 1683 by China's Qing Dynasty, only to lose it to the Emperor of Japan in 1895 as part of the Treaty of Shimonoseki. This was another one of those so-called unequal treaties that China doesn't look so fondly upon. In 1945, the war ended and allied China retook control of Taiwan, but this time under the ROC. The ROC had overthrown the Qing Dynasty in 1911. After World War II, China, being one of the main allies, was judged deserving of a bit of territory. There were no real big squabbles when in 1947, a Chinese cartographer named Yang Huaren drew a line in the sand, or should we say the sea. Didn't really concern the West back then. China had just lost 15 to 20 million people, second only to the Soviet Union in terms of World War II deaths. This was an 11-dash line, not a 9-dash line. The reason for the two missing dashes is because of the infamous Mao Zedong who, in 1952, abandoned China's claim to the area known as the Gulf of Tonkin. The reason why Mao was in power then is that Mao's forces had defeated the ROC, which the nationalist Chiang Kai-shek headed. At the end of this brutal civil war, the nationalists, military, governance, and civilians retreated to Taiwan in their millions, an act known as the Great Retreat. They thought about coming back to reclaim China, but this plan, named Project National Glory, never came to fruition. The People's Republic of China (PRC) was staying, even if it was later weakened after Mao's crazy development plans aka Great Leap Forward and his bloody oppression aka Cultural Revolution that together cost tens of millions of Chinese lives. So there were two competing claims to China, but we should remember that it was the nationalist Yang Huaren who drew the map. 
When the nationalists skipped off to Taiwan, they still claimed the territory that lied within the 11 dashes that they'd drawn. Mao had nothing to do with the map when it was created. So, you might ask, how did China, the nationalists, or the communists think they could lay claim to all that territory? Surely you can't just draw a map and, well, that's that. Well, China might respond, that's exactly what we did. Often Chinese scholars like to point out that it was only doing what the imperialists in the West had done for centuries. And as you now know, China in its heyday was indeed the regional hegemon. It now says it claimed these territories during that period of strength. China says there's plenty of evidence regarding its historical claims. The country was never really a seafaring nation unlike Britain and France, but China said it did do a fair bit of moving around the South China Sea. More so, it says, than the other countries currently claiming space in the water. There are the Spratly Islands, a 164,000 square mile area named after a 19th century British sea captain named Richard Spratly. Right now, there's a military presence on the 100 or so reefs and atolls, not only from the PRC but also Malaysia, Taiwan, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Let's now take a look at China's claim. The country says long before the British named this area, in the 2nd century BC, it named them the Nansha Islands, which became the Changsha when the Tang and Song dynasties were around in 618 to 1279. China claims it was the first country to develop some of those islands. It also says in the Guangzhou records written by the Jin dynasty, there's talk about Chinese fishermen in this area. China maintains that the Ming and Qing dynasties in 1368 to 1911 wrote about the Hainan Island fishermen in the area, and later they wrote about fixed shipping lanes there. China also likes to remind people that the British Navy Sea Guide once stated, Hainan fishermen dotted on every island live on sea cucumbers and shellfish. Some of them also inhabit the islands. Then in 1933, a French newspaper says China reported between Annam and the Philippine Islands is a group of coral islands dotted with sandbanks and submerged reefs which voyagers see as perilous and not dare enter rashly. There's also thick growth of grass, and some Chinese people from Hainan live on the islands engaging in fishing. On top of that, China says that the Cheng-He navigational charts written by the Ming Dynasty record activity on the Nansha Islands. It says there are two Qing Dynasty maps, one dated 1716 and another 1817, which both include these islands. A Chinese website edited by Wang Xiaohua, vice minister of the Central Propaganda Department of the Chinese Communist Party wrote, In 1883, Germany stopped its invasion activities on the Nansha Islands in the face of protests from the Qing government. In 1933, French occupation of the Nansha Islands met with resistance from Chinese fishermen, after which the Chinese government made firm its claim to the territory, which resulted in France's eventual retreat. China says in 1946 the Chinese government, according to the Cairo Declaration and Potsdam Proclamation, regained its sovereignty over the South China Sea islands and reefs and re-erected a monument of sovereignty on the main island. China also claims that in 1951, at the time of the Japanese Peace Treaty Draft and San Francisco Conference Statement, Chinese former President Xiao Enlai was quoted saying the area within the Nine-Dash Line was China's territory. In 1958, in the Declaration on the Territorial Sea, the PRC again laid claim to these islands. We have a few things to unpack here in defense of those that say China still doesn't get to claim the territory. Many nations have texts that say their fishermen traveled through a certain area. That's not the same as having sovereignty there. There are even caves on one of the Spratly Islands that show us humans were there around 50,000 years ago. It doesn't mean they had sovereignty. And for sure, as China was easily the most advanced nation in the area, it drew up maps with the islands and talked about them, but that still doesn't mean China had sovereignty over them. Just because you draw a map and include some islands doesn't mean you own them. 
In fact, as China was exploring these islands, Vietnam was also in the area, claiming to have discovered these new territories. Both nations were doing the same thing. Europeans were in the area too, although when a 1758 map by a man named William Herbert referred to the Spratly Islands, it just called the area dangerous ground, and it didn't mention much else. It's true that in the 1880s when the Germans started sailing around the Spratly and Paracel Islands, the Chinese told their ships to leave ASAP. And it's true that China laid flags down on some of the islands in 1902 and 1907, but this still doesn't tell us China has the legal right to the territory. In fact, China's history shows us that the country's land boundaries were never clearly defined. The argument against China is that China, the ancient civilization of China, didn't have any clear and defined boundaries, but now it's pretending it did. That's not how China worked in the past, so why is it trying to work this way now, say the Western critics? Chinese history shows us that suzerainty was always China's modus operandi, not conquest with added new boundaries. Suzerainty, by the way, means just having control over a country or territory, even if that country has some amount of autonomy and is allowed to self-govern. For instance, China did have suzerainty in Vietnam, but it never strictly ruled it. Another for instance, in 1770, Lieutenant James Cook, the captain of HMB Endeavour, claimed part of the Australian continent for the British Crown. He called it New South Wales. He told the indigenous folks their land now belonged to the British. The King of England had told Cook to take the land with the consent of the natives, but let's face it, the natives didn't really have a say in the matter. The Brits colonized Australia. Australia was not a tributary state. Right or wrong, those imperialistic Brits did not claim suzerainty. They took Australia and later dumped many of their criminals there. They also massacred Aboriginal people whenever there was resistance to the colonization of their country. Maybe Mao was right and the imperialists were ferocious, but that still doesn't mean China gets to claim any territory where once a handful of fishermen hung out in the water. Western academics say in China there was no such thing as claiming sovereignty over an area. They say the Europeans invented that kind of thing after 8 million people died during the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century. These nations introduced the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, which included the Westphalian system, a system that said there should be international laws and rules, and states that have exclusive rights in their territories. Asia did not adopt the law, not until the 20th century anyway. It's the international law now, but it wasn't when China claims to have done its island hopping. So China, they say, never had sovereignty over the South China Sea Islands. Making historical claims based on who was there at one point in history doesn't give you sovereignty in the future. The Diplomat magazine argued that if this was the case, since Taiwan was originally settled by the people of Malay Polynesian, then the Malay people have more of a righteous claim on Taiwan than the PRC. It doesn't make sense to think this way. It would mean Mongolia could make claim to just about all of Asia. Until recently, Chinese maps didn't even focus on the South China Sea. Then, in 2009, China had a dispute with Vietnam and suddenly it took to the UN a map with nine dashes on it. These days, the nine dashes are a source of national pride. You can even find them in Chinese passports. China suddenly wants what it never initially claimed. In 2012, when these new Chinese passports came out, the government in the Philippines wouldn't even stamp visa pages and said the stamps must go on a separate sheet of paper. At the time, the Philippines was fighting with China over the Scarborough Shoal, an area where China wants air and naval bases. China's been very busy for about a decade turning reefs and shoals into fortified military bases, setting off alarm bells in the Pentagon. In China's so-called Great Wall of Sand, what were small reefs have been dredged and concreted over, after which runways at barracks and anti-aircraft weapons and missile defense systems have popped up. This concerns the US more than fishing rights or oil, but the US can also put pressure on countries to go against China. 
Then again, China can do the same as it has substantial power in ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Just recently, China and ASEAN agreed to attempt to conclude their non-aggression pact on the sea feuds for at least three years. As all you historians out there know, such feuds could escalate and lead to a potential world war. Let's remember here that in a world war, these islands and reefs could prove to be a good strategic base. It's also worth noting that about a third of all maritime trade goes through the South China Sea, equal to around 4.4 trillion of trade annually. That's another reason why the USA has been sailing ships through the South China Sea under Freedom of Navigation Operations, or FONOPS. Critics inside the US have said this risks escalation, but it seems the US is not going to stop. The US has undertaken nine phone ops since 2015, which has infuriated China. By undertaking these cheeky journeys, the US is basically saying China has no right to these territories. So again, these islands meant less to China not too long ago, but now the nine dashes are firmly implanted in most Chinese people's minds. They're told time and again that there will not be another period of humiliation, never again. Despite the shaky historical evidence that everything within the line is China's, the people are made to think the evidence is solid. They are also rightly concerned about their existence, which has improved a hell of a lot over the last 20 years. When Chinese President Xi Jinping spoke in March 2023 to the 14th National People's Congress, he talked about when China was turned into a semi-colonial society, when bullying foreigners plunged China into an abyss of great suffering and tore the country apart. The people listened intently. He had a point. China did get done over, but Xi's compelling rhetoric still doesn't mean China has a right to the territory. Nonetheless, China has done a phenomenal job pulling almost a billion people out of poverty since its economic boom. It's done well under its Belt and Road Initiative, spreading its influence all over the world. The US will try everything in its power to stop that influence from expanding. It's a big reason why NATO has been forming new partnerships with the Asia-Pacific nations – Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea. Meanwhile, Vietnam banned Barbie, which, if there is a third world war, might go down as something similar to Hitler invading Poland or Archduke Franz Ferdinand's assassination. Just kidding. We hope. Vietnam actually banned the movie Uncharted, too, for the same reason. Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines all banned the innocent animated movie Abominable. The Nine Dash line barely appeared in the background in just one scene, but that was enough. They might not have the same existential fears of the US, they might have more financial concerns, although they might also be getting a push from the US. As we said, these Nine Dash line disagreements effectively kicked off in 2009. That was when Malaysia and Vietnam submitted territorial claims in the South China Sea. China made a formal diplomatic response to the UN stating, China has indisputable sovereignty over the islands in the South China Sea and the adjacent waters and enjoys indisputable sovereign rights and jurisdiction over the relevant waters as well as the seabed and subsoil thereof. This contained a copy of the Nine Dash Line to protest the Malaysian-Vietnam submission. China claimed the line was widely known by the international community. Then in 2016, the United Nations Law of the Sea Convention Tribunal ruled that China's claim isn't based on any kind of international law. Even so, China rejected this ruling and it continues to do what it wants in the region. The US has said it does not agree with China's claims, which is evident with those phone ops it's been doing, but the US can't really do much about China's bullying tactics. It can't strong-arm the issue. The US hasn't even put its name on the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is there to deal with such disputes. The country says, Part of the convention is unfavorable to its own economic and security interests, but that doesn't help matters where China's island grabs are concerned. It should also be noted that the US did not support the Philippines in 2016. 
As we said, these disputes are not only about China's expanding military installations. Countries in the region have been arguing about natural resources for years. The area is a fishing gold mine. While there's an estimated 11 billion barrels of untapped oil down there, not to mention about 190 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. No wonder then that Brunei, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Taiwan, and Vietnam all stake claims in the South China Sea. It only became known in the later 1960s that hydrocarbon resources were there, and this is what reignited the interest in the region. In May 1970, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan held talks regarding joint energy exploration in the East China Sea, and that's when China started making new claims. In 1972, the Philippines struck oil off the coast of Palawan Island. There was lots of bickering to follow, and even though in 1982 a resolution was reached under the United Nations Conference on the Law of the Sea, it didn't really address sovereignty issues concerning the South and East China Seas. Then in 1988, China sank three Vietnamese ships and killed 70 sailors in another beef about territory in the region. China fought with the Philippines in 1996 in what was called the Mischief Reef Incident. Later in 2002, China and 10 Asian nations signed the Asian China Declaration on the Conduct of Parties in the South China Sea to prevent such conflicts from happening again. Further on, China signed an agreement with Japan, again related to energy, and in 2010, when China was looking like it was at the peak of its growing economic powers, the U.S. stopped being neutral regarding the South China Sea. That's when Hillary Clinton said in a speech that the U.S. had an interest in what she called open access to Asia's maritime commons. Soon after, China started building its Great Wall of Sand, and in 2015, the U.S. did its first phone ops, which China's ambassador to the U.S. said was a serious provocation. A regional dispute was now a much bigger dispute and became much more of a concern to the U.S. in 2018 when a Chinese H-6 bomber landed and took off from Woody Island in the Paracel Islands. In 2020, Vietnam condemned China when it opened up administrative structures on the islands in the Paracels and the Spratlys. Again, China just keeps doing what it's doing and throwing its nine-dash line in front of naysayers' faces. The U.S. sees China as a threat. China sees the U.S. as a threat, especially with its new NATO footprints in Asia. Unless there is some serious detente diplomacy, it's hard to see how this all won't end very badly. People in Asia understand this very well. A recent poll was undertaken by the Eurasia Group Foundation, which conducted a survey in three Asian nations, Singapore, South Korea, and the Philippines. All these nations had significant ties with both China and the U.S. Red, they'll have to take a side. 90% of respondents said they're worried about a U.S.-China confrontation, 66% were somewhat worried, 24% were very worried, 62% of all the nations said their national security will be put at risk, but 81% in the Philippines said that. Interestingly, around a third of the respondents said they have a positive view of both Chinese and American culture in their country, although some more people said they had a favorable view of the U.S. at 70% than they do of China at 34%. South Korea had the most people that said they have a very unfavorable view of China at 38%, while Singaporeans, only 10% of them, mind you, took a very dim view of the U.S. It's doubtful any of them want to be stuck in the middle of a war, but if the world can't evolve out of balance of power politics, that's what's going to happen. Now you need to see something that's going to hurt China in the possible future fight, China's massive population problem, or see how Singapore feels in how Singapore became a tiny military superpower. Before we look at today's episode, have you subscribed to our paid episodes yet? If no, kindly subscribe if you love the infographics show. I'd like you all to take some few seconds to give us a 5-star rating. Thanks.